an 8-bit Rocket Studios production. Season 6, Episode 8, Goth and Leon, Atari ST Bedroom Coding Heroes. I started down a rabbit hole a few weeks ago when I wanted to find a Galaga-style game to play on my Atari ST. I knew that most of the best arcade-style translations for the ST were made by bedroom coders for shareware, freeware, and licenseware, but I had only dipped my toes into investigating that Atari scene. I knew of Dave Muncy and his legendary status because of his Kid Kong and Asteroidia games. As well, of course I knew of Jeff Minter and his beastie Zarjaz filled ST extravaganza, but that was about it. What I found was a wide open treasure trove of arcade translations and yesterday hits that needed a deep dive. I started with Robert Leong's Annihilator, examined the credits on Atari Mania, dove in, and I'm now hooked on the ST bedroom game dev scene. What follows is an audio edited version of the first three videos of the Bedroom Coded Classic series, focusing on Robert Leong and Gary Goth Wheaton. It's hardly exhaustive, and there's much more to explore, especially from Gary, but I think it's a great introduction to a scene that has not been explored much previously, at least by me. Atari ST Annihilator a bedroom-coded classic. Atari ST Annihilator is a 1991 fixed vertical shooter by Robert Leong, released by licenseware label Budgie UK. Gary, the goth, Wheaton, did the title music, a bouncy little tune called Colors, for this masterful bedroom-coded arcade blaster. Robert is also responsible for three other ST budgie releases in Missile Alert, Pac-Man ST, and Space Invaders, three games that we will surely cover in this series. In this early 80s arcade-style game, you control a space cannon at the bottom of the screen that must fire up and destroy the swarms of insectoid creatures attacking in waves above. Through 10 stages, you must combat ever-increasingly difficult formations with creatures that take multiple hits to destroy. To aid you in this epic space battle, you can equip your space cannon with bonus pills dropped from conquered foes. The gray, I-labeled pills give your cannon temporary invincibility, while the green, G-labeled and blue, three-labeled pills offer up repeat fire and three-way missiles respectively, but also in a temporary fashion. The fourth and final pill, the gold S-labeled variety, will replete a depleted space cannon shield. 
Level 1 is a little bit like Atari 8-bit Space Invaders with a marching alien formation but no barriers to block enemy fire. From level 2 on, the formations get much more difficult with both Galaga-style entry formations and Galaxian-style dive bombs at your planetary defenses. In issue 32 of ST format, the public domain column gave this game 86%, calling it a devilish cross between Space Invaders and Galaxian. They said it's not mind-taxing, but useful for whiling away an hour or so. We have to remember that in 1991, games of this type were not in vogue, and very little nostalgia existed yet for arcade-style games. Computer game magazines were looking for deep entertainment, not arcade action. In any case, though, they seemed to like this one a lot, if only in small doses. Atari ST user Issue 73 heaped praise on Annihilator in its own public sector section, saying that Budgie UK are going from strength to strength, and will continue to do so if they keep releasing excellent quality games like Annihilator. They love the gameplay, the graphics, the sounds, and the title music. They especially like the accuracy report, reminiscent of Galaga. For £2.95 in 1991, they also love the excellent value for the money. I was able to get this going on Hatari in my laptop, on my STE, and on my stand-up arcade. The graphics are very colorful, and the game oozes arcade quality. There is nary a slowdown in the proceedings, and the chip effects are much better than the standard ST fare. Maybe a little on the plinky side, but crisper than some of the rumbled samples we were getting in the homespun titles in these years. The gameplay is quick and joystick controls responsive. I find the need to shoot every alien multiple times a little less satisfying than a Galaga-style explosion fest, but your ship also has a shield, and there are no cheap one-hit deaths either, making it kind of even. When you get a rapid-fire or three-way fire power-up, the fun really starts. All in all, Annihilator is a game I never had back in 1991, but one I would have gladly paid Budgie UK a license fee for the ability to have a Galaga-style classic on my ST. Atari ST, A Quest for Galaxia, a bedroom-coded, stone-cold classic, number two. As you might recall, Gary Goth Wheaton was the genius music composer behind the bouncy tune in ST Annihilator that we covered in the first episode of this series. I decided to keep the six degrees of separation going and start with one of Gary's best games, A Quest for Galaxia. Released by Budgie Licenseware in 1989 and developed by his own Shapeshifters development team, A Quest for Galaxia is not only a nice Galaxian clone, it also continues Gary's tribute to Atari 8-bit computer games. Gary and his team, enamored by the Atari 8-bit line of computers, first created Ace Invaders and with it a huge set of assembly language modules for game development. With these modules in tow, Shapeshifters were able to start producing a number of games basically as tributes to Atari 8-bit classics. The best of these is probably Clodhopper, seen here, which was developed as a Bounty Bob Strikes Back clone and the data files on the release disc 
have the name Minor 2 on them. Bounty Bob was actually originally called Minor 2049er 2. In the A Quest for Galaxia title screen text scroll, Gary mentions Ace Invaders as his first game in a tribute to the Atari 8-bit classic. But as far as I can tell, when comparing the official Atari 8-bit version of Space Invaders and Ace Invaders, there is little resemblance between them, except they are both patterned after the arcade game Space Invaders in their own unique ways. There are quite a few other Space Invaders clones on the Atari 400-800XL and XE machines, as well as a different version on the Atari 5200, and possibly one of these is where Ace Invaders got minor inspiration. It's much improved though over all of these, and is really a souped-up Jeff Minter-like experience with a lot of particles and Zarjazz, making it a complete classic all its own. In the text scroll, he also mentions possibly making a Bounty Bob clone in the future, and we've already seen that come out as Clodhopper and very close to the original. Let's cut to the chase though. A Quest for Galaxia is not really an arcade Galaxian clone. If Gary had wanted to make a straight clone of the arcade machine, I'm sure his code modules and game engine, as well as his sound and music knowledge on the ST, would have allowed him to basically make a dead-on copy of the Namco classic. What Gary accomplished was more interesting to me, and more deceiving, as it was released on a British label, Budgie, and to a public that didn't really have a huge frame of reference for Atari 8-bit computers, and probably mostly missed the reference Gary was shooting for. What a Quest for Galaxia really is, is a dead-on carbon copy of the looks of the Atari 400-800 and 5200 Galaxian cartridge, with many small changes to make it better. Because the 8-bit and Gary's version look almost identical, we can be pretty sure Gary was using the 8-bit version as inspiration. Here's the question though, did he even know the arcade version existed? I think he did, and he wanted to pay tribute to the 8-bits as well as the arcade version, but we just don't know for sure. I've tried to contact Gary through a few sources, but have not been able to ask him. So whether or not Gary knew there was an arcade version of Galaxian is up in the air. What is not up in the air is that he did an incredible job crafting this game. From the text font to the flag graphics, to the Galaxian Invader colors, the sounds, the Starfield animation, and the sprite formations, it's a pure tribute to what is a good Atari 8-bit classic. Unfortunately, it's a classic that was overshadowed by more popular conversions to the ColecoVision and Commodore 64. I've always admired the ColecoVision version for its arcade quality, but the C64's tamer pace and weaker visuals are no match for the Atari 8-bit port. I was never happy with the sounds of the Atari 8-bit port, and Gary has fixed that in this version. But he has kept in the, let's say, semi-erratic, but satisfyingly speedy movement of the Atari 8-bit classic. We received the Galaxian cartridge with our Atari 800 in Christmas 1983, but didn't play it much as there was a game called Galactic Chase on one of the discs that came with the machine, and we felt it was a much better game and a closer reflection of the arcade game. So booting up Gary's game over the last week, it was surprising, but also refreshing to see that he used it as the base for his version. Since I had never given the Atari 8-bit version a fair shot in 1983, I was surprised to see how much fun Gary's version of it is. So I went back and played the 8-bit and 5200 versions to get a good idea of what he kept and what he didn't. And here's what I found. It's dead close. 
but I think it improves on the 8-bit version not just with the better sounds, but with improved gameplay. Plus, Gary's intro music is a bouncing great tune. Gary's version looks the part, but plays a lot different from the Atari 8-bit version. He replaced the squadron of diving aliens with aliens that dive one at a time. He also introduced alien formations that start off the side of the screen and march on. It's interesting to note that this is a little bit like Atari 8-bit Space Invaders. Also, serendipitously, I've been working on an Atari ST-STOS programming tutorial series we were using machine language extensions to explore making a very similar game. So I have a little bit of experience trying to make an ST perform like an Atari 8-bit home computer. Even though the Atari 8-bit is only 1.9 megahertz, the machine was built to play these type of games. The Galaxians are placed on the game screen with a redefined multicolored character set at fixed positions. The character set is then scrolled with hardware left and right. The diving Galaxians use multiplexed hardware sprites. Obviously, the standard ST doesn't have any of these capabilities built into the hardware. They all need to be faked with software. The ST has a faster processor at 8 MHz, but also needs to move 320 by 200 pixels 50 times a second rather than moving a character set and hardware sprites. In place of hardware scrolling, multiplex sprites, and four-channel multi-wave sound, Gary and his team had to create their own software sprite system using memory-intensive but optimized pre-shifted graphics and Gary's own music engine. The Atari 8-bit computer with its Proto Amiga custom chips was designed to play these types of arcade games, while the ST was designed to have Gem place graphics in 16-pixel columns horizontally, and anything above that was pure coding magic. A Quest for Galaxian is not the best Galaxian clone on the ST. I would say that goes to Sinister's Galaxian. But the Atari 8-bit cartridge port is also not the best version on the Atari 8-bits. But they both deserve a place in the historic libraries of each respective computer, and they have charms all their own. The result of Gary's work is a very fun arcade romp, and one that I want to explore more on both machines as well as take a deeper look at Gary's and Shapeshifter's other creations. I can't wait to get into more of Gary's bedroom-coded stone-cold classics. So what did the Intelligentsia say back in the day? All three ST Format, ST Review, and ST User gave it high marks. It's interesting to note that ST User mistook Galaxian for Galaga, and none of them really got the Atari 8-bit connection, even though it's in the scrolling text on the title screen. ST Format said it was better than most of the more expensive games and also placed it in the top 10 public domain shoot-ups on the ST at number 5. Pac-Man ST for the Atari ST. Bedroom Coded Classics, number 3. 
is Robert Leong's Pac-Man ST, spelled as one word without the dash, the best pure Pac-Man clone on an Atari system? The Atari ST received an abundance of good Pac-Man clones in public domain, but the only commercial offering is the side-scroller Pac-Land. From Hackman to Miss Munchie to Pac-Man on Ease, there's no shortage of well-made gobble game clones for the Atari ST. Most of Atari's home machines got a good official Pac-Man clone report. The 2600's initial offering left many wanting, but GCC's Miss Pac-Man made everything okay with VCS fans. The Atari 8-bit and 5200 each got a very good official port, with the 5200 using a slightly larger cartridge, which allowed for more graphics and intermissions. Both the Lynx and the Atari 7800 each received a very good official Miss Pac-Man port, but neither got an official original game port. But all of these 8-bit computers and consoles have had a great number of modern hacks and homebrews to fill gaps in their dot-eating, ghost-gobbling libraries. I've always been especially fond of the Atari 8-bit and Atari 7800 Miss Pac-Man ports, as they work very well with the 8-way stick and run at a speed that is comparable to the arcade. My favorite Atari 8-bit computer port of the original would have to be the amazing 2014 Pac-Man Arcade by Perry 20. Pac-Man on Ease and Miss Pac on the SD have been two of my favorite SD versions for a while now. The Ease soundtrack is amazing. Both play really well, and they only suffer from the maze not being proportionally correct. But both are very fun to boot up and play on a real machine. After playing the Genesis Mega Drive version a few years back, I wondered what a vertically scrolling dimension appropriate version on an Atari machine with an 8-way stick would play like. The only version I know of on an Atari console or computer that scrolls to create an accurate size maze is, you guessed it, Robert's Pac-Man ST. It compares very favorably to the other Atari console 8-bit computer ST versions. And it might just be my new favorite and possibly the best looking version on an Atari machine. From the proportionally designed vertical scrolling portrait maze layouts to the sounds, graphics, and gameplay, it is very, very close to the arcade game. The gameplay sounds, while not as accurate as the 8-bit and 7800 versions, are very well presented and almost sound STE enhanced, but they are not. The graphics are improved over the original even in the classic mode, and in the modern mode, it takes it all to another level. Pac-Man ST with its larger maze, more detailed graphics, shaded sprites, and very speedy hectic mode make it one of my current favorites. No matter the answer to this question of which is the best, Pac-Man ST by Robert Leong is a certified bedroom-coated, stone-cold classic. I caught up with Robert a couple weeks ago, and he graciously answered my questions about his games. Robert's first memories of playing computer games were these simple games like Breakout from basic listings in computer magazines. In the early days, he used to look forward to entering the basic code from these magazines and learning to code from them. Robert started learning to program in the early 1980s using BBC Basic on the BBC Micro. The BBC was a popular microcomputer back then in Ireland, where he was based, and in Britain. 
The BBC Micro was a microcomputer introduced by the BBC for the Computer Literacy Project, with an emphasis on computer education in the UK. The BBC Micro was actually a very good educational computer because an assembler was built into ROM, so Robert could learn to mix both BASIC and 6502 assembler code with ease during programming. The first games Robert remembers playing were Breakout and Space Invaders. The BBC Micro had a chunky but smooth version of Space Invaders that he really liked. It used Mode 7 Teletext-style graphics, a text-only screen mode with a very low resolution. In 1986, Robert purchased a 520ST and became the quintessential bedroom coder, learning to program haphazardly on his own. He didn't study anything official, though he did read one or two good programming reference books on the ST, and managed to obtain a small Motorola 68000 manual that came in handy. This manual contained the details on the number of clock cycles for each machine code instruction, which helped him become a good ST game coder right out of the gate. He didn't literally code in his bedroom though. He coded in a space between his living room and his dining room in a small one bedroom condominium in Dublin, Ireland. Once Robert knew the layout of the ST memory map and the 68,000 instruction set, he began coding the fast sprite routines used in his games. For his game Annihilator, which we covered in part one of this series, Robert wanted to write a game that was a mixture of Space Invaders and Galaxian. In part one, I said Annihilator was like Galaga, but Robert didn't think of a Galaga when making the game. Additionally, Robert also liked the concept of end-of-level guardians in the arcade games he played, so he incorporated a simple end-of-level guardian in Annihilator. Robert had already coded a few Atari ST games before he started on Annihilator, so he was familiar with the machine by the time he took on the task of crafting a speedy ST sliding shooter. I remember it was fun designing my own graphics and animating them for the game. I also remember the novel use of my dot matrix printer to design the large Annihilator title. Since scanners were too expensive for me to purchase back then, I used a clever gadget that could be attached to my printer to act as a scanner for some of the font. Although Robert was successful at making good, fast ST public domain shareware and licenseware games, he never fashioned himself as a game developer. At the time, he was working a week-on, week-off job in a private hospital, so he had time to indulge in game programming as a hobby during his off weeks. When asked about the Annihilator and Pac-Man ST soundtrack, Robert said this, if I recall correctly, Gary Wheaton, goth, liked my Pac-Man ST game, and he reached out to me and told me that I could improve on the music. I totally agreed with him, so he was kind enough to revise the Pac-Man music for me, which I included in a revised version of Pac-Man ST. After that, when I wrote Annihilator, I asked for his help again with the music for that game. Before Robert created Pac-Man ST, he was not aware of the Mega Drive Genesis or other Pac-Man ports by Tangen that all use the vertical scrolling screen to create the correct maze size. His rationale for scrolling Pac-Man ST was that he wanted to emulate the same maze that was used in the original arcade game Pac-Man, which used a vertically oriented monitor. Scrolling the screen allowed him to implement a large vertical screen and more importantly, keep the cute characters large, which he felt was a substantial part of Pac-Man's appeal. He had seen other Pac-Man versions with small characters that lost their cuteness because of their small size. He admits that scrolling the screen did, of course, make the gameplay slightly more difficult too, which he thinks added to the gameplay appeal. After coding games for a number of years on the ST, more of which we'll cover in future episodes, he moved on to programming games on the PC. By that time, the speed of BASIC implemented on a PC was pretty impressive. 
and he liked the 3D capabilities of languages like Blitz Basic. The game C program for the PC can be found on his current website. Programming games remained just a hobby to Robert. He had already started working real jobs as a physician before he even produced his first games on the ST. In our recent interview with Arcade and 2600 Miss Pac-Man creator Doug McRae, he said that one of the most difficult things in making a port of the dot-eating maze games was to translate the arcade four-way control to a console eight-way control scheme. You see, the arcade versions of the game had a gated four-way controller, but all of the Atari ports, with the exception of the Lynx, had to be ported to an eight-way stick. This means when the player is moving up the screen, for example, and the joystick is pressed up into the left, the code needs to make a decision to next move the player up or left. In the case of the Miss Pac-Man ports, GCC decided up and left meant left when the player is already moving up and means up when the player is already moving left. Because I'm not a pro Pac-Man player and never memorized any ghost patterns, the best way I know to judge a Pac-Man clone, other than graphics, speed, and sounds, is whether or not my 8-way Atari joystick moves the on-screen yellow dot gobbler the way I want him to move. How does Robert's game compare control-wise? Pretty favorably, I'd say. I did get caught a few times missing my turn into a tight corner, but that's probably more of a Jeff problem than a Robert problem. What did the Intelligentsia say back then about Pac-Man ST? The public domain roundup in page 6 new Atari user, issue 64, said that this was the closest to the real thing on the ST and loved the cartoon intermissions. ST format issue 26 gave it 83%, saying that the sprites are large, cheerful, and faithful to the original. Finally, I wanted to sincerely thank Robert for taking time to celebrate his games that he made in his bedroom, or dining room, alcove, over 30 years ago. Robert told me he had great memories of programming games for the ST because it gave him an outlet for his creativity, and he enjoyed the camaraderie at the computer club in Dublin, Ireland, where the members demoed games and programs to each other. That's what it's all really about, isn't it? Being able to find a way to catch up with those memories gone by of friends, fun, and games, when things were just a little less complicated than they are now. If even for a brief moment, those memories live on in the vertical blank. That's it for this time. There is so, so, so much more to explore game interview and story-wise with the Atari ST Bedroom Coded Game Series. Much more to come in the future. Don't forget, you can watch the video versions at youtube.com slash into the vertical blank. We have another exceptional tune by Tony Longworth as the outro today called Death Meditation. Tony's music can be heard in the upcoming Heart of Neon documentary on Jeff Minter. Until next time, Into the Vertical Blank. Into the Vertical Blank. Hi, this is Tony Longworth, UK dark alternative music composer and all-round Atari nut. Make sure to check out my Patreon music campaign. That's patreon.com slash Tony Longworth. Lots of free music over there. And if you can afford a dollar or two, please help me continue to write music. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Into the Vertical Blank. And I hope you like this piece of music of mine.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.